Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined, as always, by Drs. Steph Boye and Barry Casson. How are you both? Hey, Danny. Good, you? Yeah, pretty good. Barry, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Looking forward to being uh, confronted with two presenters, not just one today. <laughs> That's right. And we'll introduce them in just a sec. So just to, just to let everyone know, uh, Katrina is not joining on this one, but will be joining subsequently. She is on parental leave right now. So we're really excited for the case today. Um, we have two presenters, meaning it's going to be twice as good a case. We have Ryan Henry and Tom Hahn. How are you both? Doing well, Dan. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Ryan, how are you doing? Good, good. Uh, looking forward to it. Great. So just to let uh, listeners know who you guys are, do you mind giving just a, a quick intro, starting with you, Ryan? Sure. So uh, I'm one of the hematology fellows here at UBC. Uh, also did my internal medicine training here at UBC as well. Fabulous. And uh, Tom, how about you? Uh, I am also just wrapping up my first year of fellowship uh, in rheumatology. Also at UBC, I was here for my internal medicine and my med school before that. Fabulous. Okay. So uh, we have two clever doctors here to present a case. And this case I actually was part of, although I cannot for the life of me remember what it was. So I'm, I'm going to have to be a little bit careful about how much I jump in, which is good news for listeners, because this will be a shorter episode than usual, I'm sure. So maybe what we'll do now is hand over to you guys. I will let you tell the story and um, you tell us when to jump in. Sounds great. So I'll give you guys uh, a bit of the introduction, a little bit of this gentleman's past medical, but essentially this is a 69-year-old fellow who I met coming into hospital when I was on service recently with you, Daniel, but presented a really interesting case, lots of uh, services involved. So a little bit of background for him. Uh, as I mentioned, 69-year-old fellow, he has a history of systemic mastocytosis diagnosed in 2008 via bone marrow biopsy. Uh, he had previously been on a matinib therapy from 2011 to 2016, at which time he self-discontinued. He was largely lost to follow up until about 2019. Uh, and then again, until about 2021, not receiving regular blood work and not really pursuing further treatment. Uh, he also had a history of hypertension diagnosed in 2008 with long periods untreated, uh, CKD uh, with a baseline creatinine of about 150 to 160, thought secondary to hypertension, as well as an episode of ureteric obstruction back in about 2009 treated with stenting. Uh, he has had some inguinal hernia repairs, a chronic right pleural effusion that had a VATS biopsy negative for malignancy in 2011 or so, um, kind of an unclear etiology, kind of loosely called benign pleurisy. And then he has a history of hepatitis B antibody, core antibody reactive in both 2016 and February 2022 uh, with negative viral PCRs. Uh, he's only on Ramipril and Rabeprazole at home, no allergies, uh, lives in Vancouver. He has a moderate alcohol history, probably about 30 pack years, and supports himself through pension, previously working in a metal shop. And then family history, largely non-contributory for malignancy uh, or any neurologic, rheumatologic, hematologic disease. So the story for this gentleman is essentially in uh, summer or so, 2021, he started developing new onset pain and white-blue discoloration, first involving the fingers, then involving the toes, and subsequently the nose, with a significant amount of pain involved with these episodes. 
seem to be most associated with cold exposure. He also started being noted to have more significant cytopenias uh, with white counts uh, largely in the mid-2 range, uh, as well as hemoglobin in the low 100s and often clumped platelets. Uh, That started in about July 2021. But he started presenting the hospital in March 7th, at which time he'd been noted to have an outpatient white count of 2.1, hemoglobin of 68, and again, clumped platelets. He was sent into hospital, at which time he was worked up for a GI bleed, given a history of some possible melina. He also endorsed some frequent epistaxis and nasal crusting. Uh, He got a red blood cell transfusion, an upper scope was negative for any source of bleeding, uh, and he was discharged after a day or so with ENT follow-up. Hemoglobin was about 73 at the time of discharge. He sees ENT on the 22nd of March with some dried blood in the nares, but really no frank bleeding, no other abnormalities noted. And then starting in early April, uh, he begins to endorse uh, new onset, gradual, intermittent left leg pain, radiating down the anterior thigh, uh, which improves with movement. And then as of about April 20th or so, he starts experiencing new onset weakness at that left leg, a lesser degree at the right. And he starts using one crutch and subsequently two crutches to ambulate. He has no notable weakness in the upper extremities, has two falls associated with this weakness. So this brings him uh, back into hospital on April 27th. He's largely unable to ambulate, uh, and he is assessed by neurology for kind of workup of this leg weakness. Now, neurology sees him. He also endorses a 25-pound weight loss since fall 2021. Uh, He still is bicytopenic with a low white count in hemoglobin platelets, again clumped. CRP is 6.9, and CT initially doesn't show a great deal in terms of L-spine abnormalities, some lumberization of an S1. Uh, as well as some evidence of prior renal disease. And so the neurologists do a full strength assessment and they find that lift, left hip flexion is two out of five, right hip flexion, four out of five, uh, left knee extension, two out of five, and the rest of testing largely five out of five with normal sensation to light touch temperature, pinprick in all extremities. He also has absent left patellar and Achilles reflexes. So I think I'll open it up to the group at this point in terms of with that constellation of symptoms, there's many things jumping to the forefront of your guidance minds. (laughs) That's quite an intro to a case. I have to say, you got pretty far into it before I remembered. And that's pretty embarrassing because the guy has systemic mastocytosis, like a diagnosis. Surely I would remember. So maybe I'll, uh, I'll hand over to Steph. Do you have any kind of opening thoughts or problem list or uh, any kind of upfront approaches to this patient? My um, opening thought is that I wish I'd worn a diaper because this is complicated. You know, I, I think, again, so what I'm doing in real life is I'm just going to try to construct a problem list because um, there isn't some illness script that's immediately pinging in my mind here. So my current problem list um, is acute on chronic anemia, leukopenia of, of sort of unclear chronicity that I'll try to get some more details about, new left leg weakness and numbness. I think new, I'm going to call it Raynaud's phenomenon, although it's involving the nose and I don't know very much about that. Weight loss, NYD. And, and so I'm going also to update my knowledge about mastocytosis and the 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 treatment that he received for it um so as the as i'm like 
hearing this case, these are the problem lists that arise, and I'm going to try to organize all of my thinking moving forward about figuring out which of these problems are related to each other, assuming that some of them are related and possibly all of them are related, and then making sure that my background knowledge on mastocytosis is up to date, assuming that what he's, or I would start off testing the hypothesis that what he's got here, this current presentation has something either to do with the mastocytosis or the treatment or a complication of the treatment thereof. What you got, Barry? What are you thinking? I'm a, taking a bit of a different approach. And the reason I think is that when complexity comes in this format as past history, to a large extent, I guess what I'm really focusing on is why he's come in. So he's come into hospital with left leg pain and weakness. And I think that my approach would be, yes, he has a variety of chronic problems. Yes, I guess we need to find out about them. It's pretty unusual uh, for mastocytosis to be totally controlled on no medication. That, I mean, that's, that's, I guess, maybe the first thing about the past history. But leaving that aside, I would say that this man now has some form of peripheral neuropathy that's affecting certainly his left leg. And perhaps his right, I didn't hear if the reflexes it was slightly weak on the right. I didn't hear about anything else. And I guess that's where I would start. And he's got a variety of other issues. But I think I'd just start with his chief complaint and, and start to look at that. And what's on your mind kind of diagnostically in terms of that chief complaint? And uh, I, I believe that uh, Tom told us left hip flexor 2 out of 5, knee extensor 2 out of 5, and um, you know some other uh, patchy findings in there. Yeah, so I could say, so whether this, this is probably ridiculous at the lumbosacral plexus level. And so I guess pathologies that would come in that, in that anatomic location would be the start of where I would start thinking about, not where I'd start thinking about it, but where I would focus my energy right now and then look to see how relevant these other issues are. Because the, as Steph pointed out, there's so many different other components to his past uh, illness, it's it's hard to, to jump on any one of them as one of the contributing parts. And yes, he does have all of his other symptom complex with the nasal crusting and the weight loss and the potentially potential rhinos. But at this point, that's where I'd start. I think I, I, I can kind of speak to one small item of this case that uh, Steph was pointing out, which was that this person seems to have color changes in their nose. And are we sure it's Raynaud's or does it go by a different name? I can kind of offer that really severe Raynaud's can affect like the digits of the hands and feet. It can affect the nipples, nose, ears, as well as uh, the penis. So you can get it in those locations, but usually that suggests that either you have extraordinarily bad Raynaud's or it's part of a secondary condition. And older age of onset is also particularly concerning. So I think that that would be Raynaud's worth working up, not Raynaud's worth being like, oh, like, see how it goes. It, it seems a little bit suspicious. And um, as we've talked about before, for Raynaud's, we really do want to see a white phase before any other phases. Sometimes it's just just the white phase, but you hope for you know at least two phases. And if it's just turning blue, then we may just call that acrocyanosis. Um, which has a certainly an overlapping diagnosis, but slight differences there. So that would be this, this is a, well. This is a giveaway, though, because I mean, this is by the name, the, the anatomy 
is chosen, Ray Nodes. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. Thank you. <laughs> That's very good. Okay, Steph, uh, Steph, what do you think? I think that the other bit of this is, you know, systemic mastocytosis is, again, one of these diagnoses that I sometimes, I start off with the assumption that the patient has probably systemic mastocytosis, in part for the, the thing that Barry already brought up, which is that he seems to have done pretty well for six years without any treatment. And so I would be, in addition to kind of doing my, my reading around mastocytosis, I would be reading around like related conditions and reading around the patient's diagnostic workup. I want to satisfy myself that this was actually systemic mastocytosis in the first place and not some kind of misunderstood thing that is now presenting differently. Yeah, I, I would I would want a really good understanding of that because I feel like it's a really relevant piece of background that that is probably going to have some bearing on what happens here. Cool. So maybe we'll we'll pitch it back to Tom and Ryan. So what happens next in in his story? Perfect. Thanks. Uh, so essentially, neurology sees this gentleman with the findings on exam. Uh, they feel that it's concerning for a lumbosacral plexopathy. And just to refresh, it was left hip flexor and knee extensor two out of five, probably four out of five right hip flexion, as well as absent left patellar and Achilles reflex. And so they're kind of localizing to the femoral region or femoral nerve lumbosacral plexopathy. Uh, but their differential includes malignancy, radicular inflammatory, uh, metabolic nutritional, and then further down myopathy, um, given no upper extremity involvement. So they order some EMG, uh, they order an MRI, they order a CT chest abdo pel pelvis, the SPEP, UPEP, and then they want a, S a CK, ANA, ANCA, C3, C4, HCV, uh, viral load, uh, as well as cryos, hep B serology, and syphilis. They also recommend a rheumatology consult. And so that's when I meet this gentleman. And on kind of fleshing out the history a bit more, he does endorse two to three years of chronic night sweats, uh, some mild dry eyes, dry mouth for about three months, not really doing anything beyond um, just frequent water, occasional hydrating drops. He does endorse some nasal crusting and dryness, but no epistaxis, and then no rash, no other real connective tissue disease features, no stiffness. And this question of the finger, toe, nose, ear discoloration. So he does endorse that it uh, was initially the fingers, then the toes, then his ears, nose, and tongue became involved, clearly triggered by cold exposure. It's painful when it occurs. Uh, and he endorses that those areas are kind of chronically pale, but will predominantly turn blue. And these episodes can last anywhere from one to two, three hours uh, and occur fairly frequently. He hasn't had any associated finger or toe tip ulceration or tissue damage, uh, and he doesn't endorse ever seeing any reddening of those areas. So before I chat about what our next steps were, does that change any of your guys' thinking? No, I, th I think the um, I think the concept of precipitate or acquired severe Raynaud's is still the you haven't said anything that would speak against that. And um, I think the testing that you've done, including cryos and um, and I assume cold agglutinant, any of the precipitating proteins that might be affected by the cold, I think that's what I would do. I'm not sure 
why the, I guess the ankles were, I'm not sure, because of the nose, but I'm not sure how to tie that in right now. I wouldn't, if it were ankle positive, it wouldn't do anything to further the diagnosis at this point. Yeah, I mean, the, the description to me, I'm feeling cryoglobulins, you know, I'm interested in that. Because I mean, two or three hours of symptoms when exposed to cold, that's pretty impressive. But yeah. otherwise, I'm not, I'm not moving in that, that yeah, I'm, I'm otherwise not moved by the news story. I, with just one more thought is that I'm back to the uh, systemic mastocytosis and the, there's nothing in this that speaks to systemic mastocytosis. I guess that's the other sort of elephant in the room is that there's, there's nothing that I see that, uh, that you've that we've said or or by his exam now or what tom's volunteered to us is that would involve systemic mastocytosis okay so tom maybe back to you what uh what come what comes next perfect so our thoughts for this gentleman after kind of hearing that story i think that our feeling in terms of classifying his kind of peripheral discoloration symptoms as true Raynaud's, I think that what we were, what didn't fit for us was the lack of a hyperemic phase or in essence, kind of, as Dan was mentioning, kind of that biphasic where you're getting a hyperemic or kind of a reperfusion phase of his Raynaud's. So we thought that it was less classic for kind of an autoimmune kind of classic connective tissue pattern Raynaud's. And we wondered more about whether or not this could be related to as you were mentioning, uh, Steph, sort of a cold-induced heme disorder. And to that end, we were wondering whether this could be related to cryos, um, some sort of hyperviscosity process, malignancy over some of our more like autoimmune or uh, vasculitic processes. So we did make a recommendation for a calcium channel blocker for kind of atypical Raynaud's management, cold avoidance, and then added antiphospholipid antibodies agreed with the cryo and a CT sinus in terms of the pending investigations. At this time, an MRI of the lumbar spine did come back. It showed that the marrow of the bones throughout the pelvis uh, were markedly hypo-intense on uh, T1 images, uh, which were suspected to be due to his history of systemic mastocytosis, with marked T2 hyperintensity uh, around the left femoral nerve and moderate expansion of the femoral nerve, which they felt was in keeping with uh, left femoral plexopathy. And so at this point, uh, we're now about three days post-admission. Hematology gets involved, and I think I'll pass it over to Ryan. Sounds good. So at this point in time, some of the investigations that were mentioned are still pending. In particular, the cryoglobulin testing uh, is not resulted yet. Uh, but one major test result that comes to light at this point is the serum protein electrophoresis shows an IgM kappa monoclonal protein um, and so with this finding, as well as his progressive cytopenias, the hematology service is asked to see him and asked whether his presentation uh, with weakness and his cold symptoms could all be related. Like Dr. Kasson mentioned, the cold-induced symptoms and the weakness are a little bit difficult to tie to his diagnosis of systemic mastocytosis. And so there was some question of whether there's an uh, additional hematologic process that's occurring here. Some additional investigations include a uh, DAT uh, is performed given the question of cold agglutination, as well as biochemical labs for hemolysis. The DAT is negative and the hemolysis labs, including lactate dehydrogenase, 
bilirubin and haptoglobin are all normal. So any thoughts with the newly found uh, paraprotein um, and the other investigations at this point in time? Let's start with you, Steph. What do you think? How, how big was the, the end peak for the IgM kappa? Uh, it was 4.2 grams per liter. So not that big. Hard to know, you know, so, so it's, it's not like it's going to be hyperviscosity on the basis of, of an IgM, but, you know, you can get um, like cryos in, in association with a, like a lymphoproliferative disorder. So that is, that is starting to fit. And I'm sure I'm about to learn something here, but, but like Barry, I don't yet see a relationship between these new things and the mastocytosis. That's where I'm at. Barry, what do you think? What's on your mind? No, I think I, I share Steph's view. I, I guess the uh, um, I don't have as much confidence in the level of IgM protein and, and viscosity. And based on the fact that he does have an IgM, I suppose, and I guess we'd all do it. I, I think hyperviscosity in this situation is certainly maybe a contributing factor to his presentations. I still would have trouble deciding why he's got this plexopathy because unless he's got a mass there and if, if that's lymphoma or whatever. But yeah, I think I'd probably look at his viscosity. So I can update you that um, although the paraprotein is relatively small, uh, serum viscosity was sent and it was slightly elevated at 3.6. Um, the normal uh, serum viscosity uh, value is about 1.5. All right. So I, I think we're kind of circling around a, a primarily hematologic diagnosis. I, I think that uh, that kind of summarizes both of your perspectives so far. So where do we go from here, Tom and Ryan? Uh, so at this point, a bone marrow biopsy is requested both to investigate his cytopenias, which in retrospect have worsened over the last several months, and also out of concern for a lympho lymphoproliferative disorder um, given the IgM paraprotein. So uh, that's performed about a week into his uh, admission to hospital. The bone marrow biopsy shows uh, increased in mast cells, which have atypical uh, spindle-type morphology and are forming aggregates, uh, which is consistent with his historical diagnosis of systemic mastocytosis. Um, but there is also extensive involvement of a CD20-positive monoclonal B-cell lymphoproliferative disorder. And uh, this is quite more extensively involving the bone marrow than the abnormal mast cells. So can you can you translate that to uh, to English for me <laughs> as a non hematologist? What what do all those words mean? For sure. So it looks like there's a lot of lymphoma in the marrow and a little bit of mastocytosis. Damn. Okay. So um, was that something that the hematology service was expecting? I would add that his uh, CT imaging, which we mentioned before, had come back in the interim. There was actually no lymphadenopathy, no splenomegaly. Um, so for those reasons, the suspicious for a lymphoma was a little bit lower. And uh, there was a thought that perhaps his progressive cytopenias could be accounted for by his mast cell neoplasm, which had been untreated for some time. So in that sense, this was a little bit unexpected. But also, as was mentioned by others, um, some of his other symptomatology was not well explained by his prior diagnosis. Hmm. So does that diagnosis on its own, may maybe I'll pose this to uh, Barry and Steph before um, Ryan and Tom jump in, does that diagnosis satisfy you in terms of explaining the, the um, 
you know, radicular symptoms that we've seen, the cytopenias, the epistaxis, the acrocyanosis or atypical Raynaud's. Does that wrap it up in a bow? Are you happy? I'm a little happy. I'm getting happy. You know, I don't know very much about, about you know, specifically Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, but I do know that it should cause hyperviscosity. I do know that it causes other immune phenomena. I know that it can cause neuropathy. Um, I know that it can be associated with cryoglobulins. So feels like a number of the new symptoms are consistent with that. I could be totally wrong, but that's my sense of, of it. Barry, have you ever seen anything like this? Does this ring any bells for you? Uh, I really haven't, but and I've taken care of a few patients with mastocytosis, and this isn't the usual because there's a, a variety of different components to mastocytosis. So this, I, I would say, I would say just that hearing the marrow findings would go along with the other uh, information we have that mastocytosis is not a player here, and that the the player is related to the presentation, and the presentation explains some of the other components. And since lymphoma can be bizarre and have very little in the way of hepatosplenomegaly and um, lymphadenopathy and still have systemic effects, I think lymphoma at this point um, explains many of the his presentation and his um, in his hematologic and, uh, and laboratory presentation. So I'd be happy with lymphoma as a unifying diagnosis. Tom, what, what's on your mind? Yeah, so this is obviously an interesting case to be a part of and, you know, jumped out as definitely something I was not familiar with. But there were definitely there were a few other investigations that I'll just put to you guys that came back that really just we found quite interesting. So he actually had had nerve conduction studies in EMG just a day or so before his bone marrow biopsy, which showed definite denervation of the gluteus medius as well as multiple thigh muscles innervated by the left femoral nerve which the neurologist felt was in keeping with a plexopathy. Um, but his comment, which was Ryan and I chatted about at length, was that uh, given the systemic symptoms and hematologic abnormalities, this is most likely infiltrative in nature, uh, was how he characterized the plexopathy, which was definitely something I had never seen before or kind of encountered. And so I think Ryan and I had a few conversations about whether or not he'd seen lymphoma invading nerves in such a such a pattern and can you remind me that the cryos came back negative on him yeah so there was a lot of discussion about the cryoglobulin testing for this patient and this is something i hadn't encountered before i think the cryoglobulins had been ordered three or four times by various teams involved because everyone was very curious given his cold induced symptoms and every time the result was reported as specimen unsuitable uh, and so we still didn't have a cryo result and uh, hopefully one of the laboratory physicians put a note in the patient's chart that uh, they were actually unable to do cryoglobulin testing on this patient's uh, serum. Um, interestingly, when the uh, whole blood sample um, was uh, cooled below 37 degrees Celsius, it, it immediately solidified and then uh, that resolved upon rewarming. Um, so they were actually unable to do the proper centrifugation and uh, testing for cryoglobulins that they would normally uh, do in the lab. And is there an explanation as to why? And when you cool the blood and it congeals, is that just the cold agglutinins or is that a really a cryo feature? So I'll uh, 
tell you what the interpretation is from the uh, laboratory physician. He says that we can be confident that there is a cold-mediated reversible solidification of the serum. We cannot specify whether this is due to the patient's paraprotein or due to other immunoglobulins, and that repeat testing um, after treatment of the patient's lymphoma might help clarify this. <laughs> they put a note in the chat saying, please stop bothering us. <laughs> we we run much. this test. <laughs> okay, but, that's very interesting. In some senses, they, they, I mean, they're making, they've made the diagnosis. They, you know, oh, yeah. They're, they're that's very helpful. Types, yeah, there's different types of cryo, but the fact that the blood at room temperature or 37 degrees or whatever, because they do 37 and 35 usually, so it, the, that, that makes, I think it's, the, I mean, I would say the lab, uh, should have reported that, not that they were unable to test it, but to the observation that the pathologist, after three attempts or a number of attempts, said, we can't do, <laughs> we can't do the test because, because of what he's, they've just observed. Yeah, good point. Uh, Steph, what do you think of all that? Yeah, um, I agree with Barry. I mean, it <laughs> seems like a very positive result. Like it's a, you know, I'm sure as cryoglobulins were being described, this is what the original observation was. It wasn't, didn't involve a centrifuge. It involved some person with, you know, acrocyanosis having their blood congeal on a bench somewhere. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I have anything else clever to add. It's, yeah, it it certainly seems like information worth like giving giving up front. Um, <laughs> not, like I don't know why you'd hide that. That seems pretty relevant. Okay, well, so so we have we have a diagnosis, not necessarily expected. Um, it, I'm curious, what's the link, if any, to the systemic mastocytosis? It's thought to probably be unrelated. So, um, although systemic mastocytosis is definitely a rare disorder, and this patient's lymphoma manifestations had some rare features, it seems like he actually has two rare separate hematologic diagnoses so you've you have diagnosed him as medically unlucky it's not good to be interesting yeah Yeah. that's true absolutely um so so what was done for him and how's he doing so one of the questions remains what type of lymphoma does he have and uh one of the possibilities that dr voyer threw out earlier was of waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia uh with a uh, lpl lymphoma and so at this point, some additional genetic testing is done, including testing for a MYD88 uh, mutation, which is commonly observed in lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Uh, and this, was, uh, this mutation was detected, and a uh, final diagnostic sort of interpretation um, from hematopathology was that uh, this was consistent with LPL, lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Oh, wow. Jeez. Well, I... <laughs> Having been involved in that case, I remembered shockingly little of it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you're so honest, Danny. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it it means that I can always learn, even from going over cases I've already done before, and rewatch movies even after I've seen them before. <laughs> Ryan and Tom, thanks so much for presenting. That's a really fascinating case, um, and thanks for kind of talking us through how to interpret all those kind of fancy, interesting tests there. Um, can I ask, how's the, how's the patient doing now? So I had the chance to uh, see this gentleman, geez, a couple of weeks ago now. He is basically within about three, two or three days of that bone marrow result. Um, he was started on bendamustine and rituximab chemotherapy uh, and transferred under hematology. 
I saw him during one of his outpatient transfusion uh, stays and still dealing with a fair amount of left limb, left lower limb weakness, but, you know, overall feeling better, less pain, but, you know, kind of frustrated and a little bit perplexed of his ill luck, uh, I'm afraid. Well, guys, thanks very much. I really appreciate you both bringing that case and reminding me about it and uh, teaching us all that stuff. All right. Well, that'll be it for this episode. We are supported by QXMD Reed and the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. We're produced by Nikki Thorpe of Bronet Consulting. If you have a interesting case or challenging case that you want to bring on to the show, please get in touch. You can email us at foundationmorningreport at gmail.com. You can tweet at us on Twitter at Paul underscore report. And our website is stpaulsmorningreport.com. All right. Thanks, everyone. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks for having us on.